Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 20th, and my guest today is Ricardo Reich, professor of economics at Columbia University. Ricardo, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Our topic for today is Keynesian economics, very broadly defined, its role in the classroom in scholarly research and in public policy. And I want to start with the classroom. How are the ideas of Keynes uh, still seen in the, in the mainstream textbooks and in, and, you, and in most, say, principles of economics? I think they, they're really pervasive. And so in some ways, they're as present as are the ideas of Smith or Ricardo. They're a little bit of everywhere, uh, especially, of course, in the macro part of the, of the classes. Um, and you see that in that um, it's still the case that in most undergraduate textbooks, you have some version of a model of the model of ISLM to explain aggregate demand. Um, you have it then when we resort to explaining why is it that aggregate demand policies have an effect we're still resorting to things like price and wage rigidities. Uh, there's still a very large emphasis on talking about monetary and fiscal policy as the sources of um, fluctuations in output and the labor market. Um, and so you see it in all of these little different bits so that even when you're not talking about Keynes or you're talking about, say, the real business cycle model, you're still, that still often shows up in opposition to the Keynesian view um, or as a response to it. So that in the same way that the ideas of, as I was saying earlier, say Adam Smith, even if we don't spend chapters just talking about the invisible hand, it seems to in many ways be pervasively in every single chapter. You also see a lot of the ideas of Keynesian macro, I think, in a lot of the chapters that talk about macroeconomics. So let's talk about aggregate demand to start with. Uh-huh. Uh, I was an undergrad in the, uh, in the 1970s and a grad student in the late 1970s at the University of Chicago, uh-huh. undergrad North Carolina. And I, um, my undergraduate classes at North Carolina, we learned what you called ISLM, and I mm-hmm. think that's still for those of you out there who have taken a intermediate macro class or even a principles class. That's a familiar, if not frightening, mm-hmm. uh, set of of syllables. For those who are not uh, economics majors, those people who've never had a class, give us the idea of what ISLM is trying to capture and what its uh, role is in the classroom. So we're trying to capture, I think, well, there's, there's three important roles that that model is capturing, or at least that I find important in teaching. And I come to this, by the way, this is, this is actually the first year that I've ever taught intermediate macro. And so I had to confront this question past summer in preparing my class. And one of the initial starting points was precisely, why should I be teaching ISLM? Um, and why do I raise that? Because, as I'm guessing we're going to talk later, ISLM has essentially disappeared out of the out of research for now almost 20 years, at least the, the version of ISLM that we teach to the undergraduates is just not present at all in our research or even in our graduate classes at all. So why is it that we should go and teach it? Um, and so what I found was that in trying to prepare my class, and again, my starting point was maybe that I shouldn't be teaching ISLM, was that it was actually very important. Um, and why is it important? And I said, well, on three accounts. The first one is that we now acknowledge, I think, in macro that as interesting and insightful as simple partial equilibrium models may be, it's very important for students to get an idea of general equilibrium. An idea that a disturbance or some change in a particular market will spread to a second market, which in turn will then feed back into the first market and so on until you find the general equilibrium of the system. Well, if you pick up an undergraduate textbook in macro, at least that was my experience and I picked up several of them, you'll see that ISLM is actually the only instance of general equilibrium in the undergraduate textbooks. Um, we will talk about growth, and so we'll talk very clearly, say, about the savings market, or sometimes we'll talk about inflation and talk very clearly about the money market, but they're all always partial equilibrium analysis. I mean, even the famous solar model is really partial equilibrium in the sense that there's only one market that you're doing it. Now, it's, of course, also a trivial general equilibrium in that that's also the only market in the economy. Yeah. Um, ISLM is the only one where... You, you are going to show the students the two markets, the money market and the goods market, and as things change in one, it feeds into the other and vice versa up until you reach an equilibrium. So that's the, one, that's the first thing that I thought was very important about teaching SLM is that it was the only case in which there was 
truly general equilibrium in the sense of two independent markets that have feedback between each other, and you have to find equilibrium in both. And it's and a graphical. What's sorry? It's a graphical uh, picture of that simultaneous equilibrium that exactly. helps students see that. Exactly. So that's the that's the good thing about it, and that's one part that I found important about it. The second part in which it is important is that um, it is important, I think, macro in some ways more than micro, at least at the intermediate level, is very tied to policy, or at least the students are very often coming in with questions about things like monetary and fiscal policy. ISLM still provides a very intuitive apparatus to try and think about things like monetary and fiscal policy, sometimes with the right answers and sometimes with the wrong answers, but either way, still an approach for the student to be able to see how is it that the fundamentals of monetary and fiscal policy are going to have an impact on the economy. And the students, I think, find that very rewarding. So even if, for instance, when I teach monetary policy, I do it a lot under the uh, prism of the Barrow-Gordon model. So I spend one or two weeks on the Barrow-Gordon model, and that's how I use it to teach um, uh, things like inflation biases and other things and central bank independence. Still, I find that I can only do that after I spend a week or two doing SLM so that when I say, well, imagine the central bank picking inflation, the students can see how would that actually happen. Uh, how could that come about? Okay, so it, it's, a, it's an important foundation for the students to be able to see that so that then we can very quickly get to the policy questions. Or even, for instance, when I do fiscal policy, where I do it uh, very much under the lens of recurrent equivalence per income hypothesis and simple two-period choice problems, I find that it's very, it's very useful for the students to first have seen the ISLM with its simple consumption function and only then do the permanent income hypothesis, and they can link the two very easily and see exactly both what are the flaws but also the virtues of ISLM. That's the second direction in which I find it important to teach ISLM. The third one, and that was, um, again, something that surprised me, was that um, while traditional ISLM is not part of research or graduate curriculum, at the same time, one of the dominant models that we teach graduate students nowadays is the so-called new nucleosis synthesis or new Keynesian economic model. And I'm thinking here of the simple three-equation model exposited, say, in the survey article by Clarity, Galli, and Gertler or in the masterful textbook by Mike Woodford. Now, if you look at our model, which is formed essentially of an IS curve, although a forward-looking IS curve, that's essentially an Euler equation for consumption. Now, hang on one second. We've got to yep. slow down here for the non-economists in the audience. Sure. So um, the IS curve, the, the, let's, let's stay away from the curves because the blackboard here in, in – in, um, yeah. On the internet, it's a bit uh, opaque. It's a bit uh, uh-huh. misty. It's hard to see. So we're going to be talking about equilibrium in the goods market, okay, and equilibrium in the money market, exactly, and how they interact back and forth. So try to summarize the uh, the more advanced model without uh, without without equations, if you can. Okay. So Hard in, to do. I, I right. apologize. And if we're in the goods market, in the new model, in the new ISLM or the modern version, we think of it in terms of the trade-off between do I want to consume more today or consume tomorrow. So in, choose, in seeing what is the equilibrium consumption that we observe in the equilibrium output, and particularly how it relates to the real interest rate, the key trade-off there is really the intertemporal trade-off. Do I want to consume more today? Do I want to consume more tomorrow? And the interest rate is giving me the relative price between those two periods. In the old IS... The intertemporal dimension was really ignored, and we're just seeing to what extent the different components of income may, uh, uh, well, the different components of income may add up to income, but affect it. But in particular, the heart of the IS curve, or the old IS, was really a link between output and interest rate that came through investment. We thought that higher interest rate is going to lower investment and thus lower output. That's in the old model, and that's really what, I, what drives a lot of the dynamics there, or a lot of meat in the model. Let's now go back to the new model. Well, in the new model, it's really very similar in that it's really about the real interest rate and how it affects how do I want to consume today versus tomorrow, which is, of course, how much do I want to save. And again, you have that a higher interest rate means that I want to consume less today, save more. Well, let's, yeah, let's turn now. I want to interrupt you for a sec because yeah. I think this is a good place to, to come back to some of the fundamentals that people see in the newspaper and we've talked about in some previous podcasts. Two things that jump to mind – are aggregate demand and uh, the paradox of thrift. So if we start with aggregate demand, mm-hmm. I think most of us were taught, who again, who took undergraduate classes at some point, 
that aggregate demand is C plus I plus G right. in a closed economy. Sometimes we're going to look at net exports as well, but let's just stick with a closed mm-hmm. economy f- for starters to keep it simple. That C plus I plus G uh, is what determines uh, aggregate demand. And if one of those goes down, such mm-hmm. as C, if, if consumers start to spend less, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have uh, the beginnings of a Keynesian business cycle theory. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a gap now between actual demand and potential output, potential mm-hmm. demand, and that creates a potential for fiscal policy or, or monetary policy to stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. So in the simple, not the graduate level, but sure. in the simple undergraduate uh, classroom style uh, text, undergrad textbook story, is that shortfall in aggregate demand the, the, the creator of the opportunity for fiscal stimulus that we're looking that we're talking about today? Um, only partly. Um, in the graduate level ISLM model or New Keynesian model, um, you have to distinguish between two concepts. One is what economists would call the flexible price level of output or which you more or less call the potential level of output. Um, and that is, what is the level of output that would be achieved if all prices and wages were, were flexible, were being set freely with no rigidities of any kind. Okay? So now, then there's the actual level of output, which is the one that we observe, given the shocks, but also given that some firms are not adjusting their prices as quickly as they would. Okay? So now, in this baseline model, what happens if, for whatever reason, people want to consume less today? Because for whatever reason, they're not enjoying goods as much today, or Scared, because they're concerned they're about the... Worried about the future, they might lose their job. Worried about the future or something. Okay. So on the one hand, that by itself is going to lead to, even in the in the model without rigidities, is going to lead to a fall in output today. And why? Because people are going to start saving more. Okay? They're going to delay consumption today for consumption in the future. And that's really about putting, putting money into investment, putting money into um, other things that will lead for output to be higher in the future than it is today. Okay? So that's going to lead to a fall in Y today. However, fall in, if you have... A fall in, in, you say Y? In output, yeah. In output, Okay. okay. So now, what now, happens question, if you have... Time yep. out. Question. Mm-hmm. So w- I thought it was C plus I plus G. So if C goes down and I goes up, why is there a change in output? Because there's going to be a trade-off because between the C today and the C next period, and the C in the next period. So you're going to be putting things into... So think about I as being the difference in capital today, I being the increase in capital stock that you're going to be generating. Well, if today I wanted to consume less, What's going to happen is that by investing that, that's going to raise the capital stock for the next period, and it's going to raise output in the next period. And so what we're going to have is exactly this distinction between more output tomorrow and, and less today in relative terms. Okay. Okay? So it's, again, the trade-offs, and that's the key between the old and the new IS, whereas in the old IS, we're thinking about C plus I plus G, something goes up, something goes down. In the new, we're really thinking in terms of present versus future. Is output and consumption lower today relative to what it will be in the next period. Okay? And that's the way we're defining what is a fall or not. And so I hate to bring this up because yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a potential Pandora's box, but uh, how does the paradox of thrift enter into that, um, into that conversation, either the undergraduate or the graduate level conversation? Well, with difficulty, actually. <laughs> uh, with great difficulty in the graduate one. In the undergraduate, it follows from a more traditional story where we all try to save more, it may end up being that by consuming less, and therefore we're going to be pushing output lower today. Um, in the gradual one, it actually doesn't show up. Um, so the Paris of Thrift is an, interesting, um, is an interesting example where the old and the new, I think, differ quite substantially. I was having this discussion recently with another macroeconomist on should we be teaching just a version of the new ISLM, as some textbooks are starting to push, and... And we concluded that the main loss in losing the old one is exactly the paradox of thrift. The paradox of thrift shows up in the old one, but not in the new one. But so, is that a good thing? Is that a feature or a bug? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) If you're if you're very keen on history of economic thought, then you're very upset about that. In terms of in terms of um, is the paradox of thrift an important empirical fact? I think I have never seen very convincing evidence that that's the case. Uh, But neither that it's the opposite. but I think it is an important issue. Um, so to summarize, mm-hmm. what you're saying, the way I understand what you've said so far is that 
the undergraduate level macro class, which relies yep. heavily, including your own, on the ISLM framework, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a world where prices and wages adjust either slowly or mm-hmm. sometimes not at all. Yeah, that that failure of price adjustment leads to disruption. Yeah, and creates some of the uh, business cycle that we see around us, mm-hmm. uh, at least in theory. Yeah. Uh, but that the graduate level macro and then the research level macro tries to allow for a, a richer uh, role for prices and wages. Yes. As a result, the paradox of thrift is not so um, present. Yes. And but we still have some disruptions yes. with uh, because of price inflexibility exactly. or wage inflexibility. Uh-huh. Now, presumably, I want to talk about that in a, in a little more detail, but. I first want to hear about uh, – I just wanted to summarize that when you talk about the virtues, of th- you listed three, I think. Yeah. It's a way of organizing our thinking. It's exactly. not truth. It's not um, – Right. It's not empirical science. It's uh-huh. a framework to deal with the fact that exactly. macro is a complicated place. Yep. Okay. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. So Good. my three virtues were – just repeat them were – one, it was a way to teach students go, through go, – uh, lead through the – students through general equilibrium. Two, that it was very useful in terms of seeing how policy is going to have an effect and be able to control macro variables. And three, that a lot of intuitions, we talk about the interest rate investment and we could talk about the others, um, are, that we do in research macro are also present, essentially very similar mechanisms in the undergraduate macro. So it's actually not so much of a sacrifice to use the old one to teach undergraduate. Now, in, in the classical model, a, a world that uh, is... Uh, pretty much been lost, but it has adherence here and there and, and is, I, I think, potentially poised to make a comeback. Mm-hmm. Uh, the level of out- output is, I mean, well, let, me, let me say it differently. What, what frustrates me about the C plus I plus G um, simplistic story isn't so much that it assumes prices are sticky or that this can go up holding that constant and that's not really right. It's the idea that it's an ex post story uh, that is true in an accounting sense, but but misleads. So let me give you that mm-hmm. that analysis and you react to it, please. Mm-hmm. So somebody told me the other day, and I they said, well, you know, with, with consumption down, if the government's got to make up the difference. Where else could it come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad DeLong the other day in a debate with uh, uh, online with with uh, someone said, well, government spending is as good as anyone else's. And in this sort of worldview, if I understand it correctly, and I've become so estranged from the Keynesian model, it's hard for me to hear it. So I, w- I want to hear you defend it if you want to or not. In this sort of story, output comes from me wanting stuff as a consumer, investors wanting resources yep. as uh, future consumers, and government wanting resources and collectively funded stuff. Yep. Rather than – well, yeah, after the fact – you can apportion the output pile as coming as part of C and I and G, but it doesn't seem like the right way to think about it causally. Mm-hmm. That that wealth creation and and output and innovation uh, come from the bottom up more than the top down, and it's just imposing an ex post accounting identity on it. Is that a fair criticism, or am I missing something? I think it's a fair criticism, but then again, I agree with it. <laughs> and, but, um, but not so, everybody does, right? I mean. So why do I agree with it? Or let me try to put yeah, it in my and, own words. And why do um, other people think it's it's a useful way to think about policy even? Mm-hmm. So I think, so I want to go and think about the economy again to try and give a little bit of the idea of general equilibrium. And how do I want to think about that? Well, when I think about general equilibrium, I'm thinking about, one, there's being people making some choices. So there's been some behavioral relations that say how people react to circumstances, the consumption function being one of them. I'm richer, say, I want to consume more. Okay? And that is then combined by a series of accounting identities or market clearing conditions, depending on how you want to call them, but they're just accounting identities that say that supply has to be equal to demand in a certain sense. Okay? Now, the economy is going to be then described by the combination of these two things. On the one hand, you're going to have to have these supply equal demand, almost accounting-like identities, and on the other hand, you're going to have to have this be- these behavioral relationships. If you just stare at Y equals C plus I plus G, the accounting identity, it's hard for me to see, and I agree with you, how that you really make much progress because you're just apportioning things. It has to hold as an equality. Something goes up, something goes down, but you just have one equation and far too many unknowns for that one equation. Where that 
equation becomes powerful when it's combined with a model of consumption, a model of investment, and a model of G, because then those are going to combine, and once you have all of those, the behavior relations as well as the market clearing or accounting identities, then you're going to be able to see what will happen. You're going to be able to start telling stories that have to do with mechanisms, economic mechanisms and economic trade-offs. And then the Y equals C plus I plus G may be useful, but only as part of that, over, of that overall system. So I think a lot of the confusion that you're expressing, and which I often feel as well when I follow these debates, either on the press or even in some academic circles, is that by focusing on one equation and, and forgetting about the others, it's then very easy to essentially fall into this trap of having too many degrees of freedom, and then people can easily be talking about cross-purposes and say, well, C goes up, then G must go down, or C goes down, G must go up. Well, essentially what's missing here is that uh, when Brad says that, when Brad DeLong says that, I believe he has a very coherent view of the world, but it involves essentially a model of where the C comes from and where G comes from, which he then combines with that accounting identity to tell you what's going on. At the same time, when someone else tells you exactly the opposite of Brad, it's really that they're not disagreeing with the accounting identity. They're really disagreeing on their model for what's going on behind with C and G. Absolutely. And it's by not stating those that the, the matter, I think, becomes muddled. I don't think that's actually an exclusive property of Keynes in economics. It's just a property of all kinds of macro discussions, which is that we have to think about the whole economy, well and that requires specifying all these different sides. And whenever you don't talk about these uh, different sides, it's very easy to fall into these confusions. Well said. Now, you said something very interesting to me uh, in that nice exposition. You said, we have a model of C, we have a model of I, we have a model of G. Uh, in my experience, uh, nobody really has a model of G other than what they think the model ought to be rather than what it is. Right. Uh, you know, I'm speaking right now from George Mason University, yep. which is one of the homes of public choice theory, the exactly. theory that tries to explain government as it is, not yep. how it ought to be. Mm -hmm. And I suspect in most macro classes, the role of G, uh, which is a, a rather simplistic uh, letter to describe the complexity of the yep. political process, it isn't really modeled. It's presumed. Is that correct? I think that's correct. And I, again, agree with you wholeheartedly that that's, I think, a flaw in our current education. I think we go to the way we do it, and I mean, let's not be too critical. The way we do it is, as I said, we start with models of why is it that things like G matter. Uh, we then move on to models of how could G be optimally set. And then we never get to the third stage, which would be how is G actually set. And part of it is just running out of time, I think. Um, but I think it is a flaw that um, that we make far too easily. Yeah, we also run out of, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, it's not just time. It's um, it's a little too hard. <laughs> it is hard, yeah. Uh, it's part of the problem. And it's a little bit but, of hand-waving, I think, to say, you know, yeah. G fills the gap or G provides the public goods or whatever is right. the simple story. But, Russ, let me pick on that, by the way, and expand a little so far as we're talking about undergraduate economics. But let's let's move forward and talk about how we're discussing the current crisis, say. Yeah, sure. Um, and the debate on G, in some ways, the criticism that you just made to the way we teach it, applies a lot to the way we see in the policy discussion. We're talking about things like government spending multipliers. Well, what does that really mean, given that spending has all... You can spend the money in so many different ways. Um, and so... These, this problem, I think, of treating G simplistically, public choice uh, theory notwithstanding, is, I think, one that's not just one of oversimplifying to teach to undergraduates, but it's one that I think in economics we still don't have a very good model of those things. Yeah, and I, think, I agree, and I think it's a very embarrassing fact. Uh, uh, G has been, it's been proposed that G go up $787 billion, as, almost as if, in some people's minds, as if it doesn't matter what G is spent on. Right. Uh, there is an argument to be made for that. I don't accept it, but it's 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 a legitimate mm -hmm. uh, view in the policy world. When Paul Krugman, a Nobel laureate, says it ought to be twice as big, the stimulus, it ought to be two tr closer to $2 trillion, not $1 trillion. he isn't worrying about what the tr extra trillion is spent on. He just wants more spending, and he's pretty open that that's good enough, um, which strikes me as know. strange, but – <laughs> you want to comment on that? You don't. You know, I can tell. Do you? you no, know, I mean, I think it's it's. I'm 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 always a little reticent to um, criticize economists when they take well positions because the way I see it, they're always essentially taking trying to describe partial derivatives, even if that there's a total derivative behind it. So when when Krugman is saying, well, we should have a higher G, he's thinking about the effect of G purely through the aggregate demand channel, 
And then he's implicitly saying, well, and then there's all these other partial derivatives, there's all these other effects of G depending on what kind of G it is, but my column today is just not focusing on those. Um, I wouldn't say that when he's doing that, he's ignoring the other ones. It's just an issue of focus. So only got 750 words, so he's got to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's Possibly. the sense in which I'm, I think I'm more generous well. to, uh, to that way of arguing than you are. Um, that's kind. It's an issue of, I think, focus. Uh-huh. That's fair. Um, before we move on, I want to I get to the policy issues in more, a little more detail and the empirical uh, issues as well. Before we do, though, it would be nice if you would say something about sticky prices and wages because I think, again, as, a, as an amateur in macro, as somebody who was, who was trained more in micro, in the back of my mind, there's this, this idea that uh, the Keynesian model has sticky this and that, wages mm-hmm. and prices. And as you point out in the, in the neo-Keynesian synthesis or the new Keynesian models, prices either aren't as sticky or they're more flexible. Mm-hmm. But what, what was that accomplishing in the intuitive side for the story of the business cycle that was going on, that stickiness? So let me split the answer into two parts. The first one is why was it important to have that sticky price? And that's in many ways the big Keynesian insight. And two, why is it that we find that plausible? So starting with the first one, the reason why that's important is that you have to um, be able to tell a coherent story if you are, or at least that's the one Keynes wanted to say, you have to say why is that output will sometimes be lower than what it could have been. Okay, one. Um, well, an answer to that is that output is lower than what it could have been because the prices are being set too high. Well, why would they be set too high? Well, because maybe they were stuck at a high level from the previous period, for whatever reason. So that's the first one. Second, again, Keynesian policy, um, going more to the policy, a lot of Keynesian economics is about why is it aggregate demand policies are powerful? Why is it that when the Fed changes the interest rate, that will have an effect? Why is it that when government spending changes that will have an effect. Well, one clear channel through which that will be true is if, again, there are things like sticky prices or wages. Why is that? Well, because when the Fed changes something like a nominal variable, why is that going to have an effect on some real variable? Well, because the Fed is, say, pumping in a, bu- a series of money, a lot of money into the economy. But if the, prices, if the price were just to adjust one-to-one with that amount of money, then nothing would really change. We'd just have money as a veil. Okay. Whereas if the prices are sticky, then that extra money is you're going to boost aggregate demand, and it's going to lead to changes in output. So you're okay. going to nominal prices might be sticky, but when yeah. you when you have inflation, well, what's, what's the right way to describe this? Real variables could real prices could fall, even mm-hmm. if nominal prices are 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 fairly sticky. Exactly. Is that is exactly. that a, a right That's way to exactly say right. it? Exactly right. Yes. And so it was important because again, for these two important parts of what I think. Keynes in thinking, I, the idea that it could be that fluctuations in output are not fully efficient and that output could be too low or unemployment too high, one. And two, that aggregate demand can have power over the economy, then sticky prices or wages are just a very powerful mechanism through which that can happen. And that's that, in the sense that they were very important, I think, to the underpinnings of Keynes in thinking. I want to stay with the, with the sort of theoretical world for a minute. We're going to come, yeah. for those of you out there listening, we're going to come to the real world uh, soon because we're going to start talking about some of the empirical uh, evidence for these ideas. But uh, I, want to, I want you to contrast that story you just told me with what I was taught as the standard monetary story, mm-hmm. which has a Keynesian flavor at times. It's a little bit confusing, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's juxtaposed against Keynesian thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, Milton Friedman mm-hmm. in 1962, when he, with Anna Schwartz, wrote The Monetary History of the United States, it really began a, a, the beginnings of a counter-revolution against the Keynesian model, mm-hmm. but it has Keynesian stuff right. in it in a certain way. The way, the way I understood uh, Friedman is that changes in the money supply could have real effects – as opposed to just changing the number of zeros on the prices, mm-hmm. because people wouldn't be sure whether the increases in the demand for their product was was economy wide, yep. in which case it was probably it was just say inflation, or whether actually there was an increase in the demand for what you were making, and you should go out and hire more workers and raise your prices, and uh, and so in the short run you could get real effects for monetary policy, and in the long run all you get is inflation. And that was Friedman's attack both on the sticky price idea and also on the Phillips curve, which was this idea that, that, that inflation and unemployment had to be negatively correlated. And when they started to not be negatively correlated, it was another challenge to the Keynesian, Keynesian view. Is that correct? 
I disagree somewhat with that story. Um, but I disagree, I guess, more. I think your story is exactly accurate from an historical perspective, but I think it's not the one that describes well the current state of knowledge and research. Go ahead. The current state of knowledge, the way I view it, is between the opposition between the classical model and the New Keynesian model. And in the classical model is one in which there's flexible prices and wages. There are no information problems of the type you've described, and therefore, for instance, monetary policy is completely ineffective and changes nothing at all. There is no Phillips curve at all, not, not one that we can exploit or even one that we can't exploit the way Friedman described it, but there's simply just no Phillips curve. Um, and aggregate man policies have, have no effect. So that's one side. Another side, which is what I've been calling New Keynesian, instead emphasizes the fact that policy, aggregate demand policy can have an effect on output, uh, one, and that output can be too low or too high. Now, both of these propositions, as I stated them now, I think are completely shared by this Milton Friedman view of the world that you've described. Um, now, I'm not going to go as far as call Milton Friedman New Keynesian. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you disagree with that. But what I mean is that in terms of the current debate, I think in terms of modern macro, the way it is done now, New Keynesian economics and new monetarist economics are actually the one and the same thing in this model. Meaning, um, and for this, it actually, I think that Miles Kimball was the first one to make this point, that the New Keynesian model could really be described as the new monetarist model. They're essentially both guided on the same principle that is trying to justify through adjustments in the, through misadjustments in the prices, why is it the monetary policy has a real effect? Okay. So now, how do we get to the monetarists versus the Keynesians back of the 60s into today's speech? Well, today, if you were to frame them, they would both be working within what I call the new Keynesian model, okay? a model in which monetary policy can have real effects, but they would then just differ in how effective they think that those real effects would be. That is, they would... Whereas the Milton Friedman view would emphasize, as you said, imperfect information uh, stories of, um, of why prices don't adjust well enough, and would argue that monetary and fiscal policy, while powerful, for the most part, is not going to be able to control the cycle. A more Keynesian view would say the opposite, would say that it's about stickiness in terms of the prices not changing for some physical reason, and would say that this allows you to, in some ways, control the state of output. Note, for instance, that... Um, I mean, you've been, you've been, you called me to ask a lot of questions about Keynesian economics. Well, my own work is all about imperfect information stories of why prices don't move enough. So I'm, I'm, I'm in many ways, I'm happy to describe myself as a Friedman or new monetarist economist than a new Keynesian economist. And yet, you know, my work is seen very much under the heading of the new Keynesian model because it's really the new Keynesian versus the classical. And the new monetarist is within the new classical approach rather, uh, sorry, the New Keynesian approach rather than the classical approach. So here's an, here's an irony that, that uh, I think is problematic f- for the current uh, research agenda, and I, and I want to get your reactions to how you think that might be, cha- might be changing. Uh, in, in the old days, again, going back to the 60s and 70s, when people talked about sticky prices uh, and sticky wages, they'd invoke union contracts where mm-hmm. wages were set for long periods of time, they would invoke uh, even strange things like this is, I, I find this hard to say without laughing, but you know you write your price down on a big sign mm-hmm. and it's costly to go repaint the sign mm-hmm. um, you know I've seen from my office window I'm, I'm sitting right now in Fairfax, Virginia, but I have an office in Arlington that looks out on a, a gas station and I've seen the guy up on the ladder actually changing the price of gas daily. He probably changes it it's sometimes last summer. He probably changed it more than once a day. So we live in a time in the 60s and 70s, those stories were somewhat plausible that mm-hmm. prices were kind of sticky, wages were set by these long-term contracts, couldn't be adjusted quickly. Now we're in an economy in, in the 21st century where unions are less than 10% mm-hmm. of the private sector workforce. Most prices are set by a barcode that can be changed with a flick of a finger on a keyboard in the program. Mm-hmm. And we're and to add the final irony, we're in the middle of a very bad recession that could be drifting toward a depression that was set off by enormous drops in housing prices mm-hmm. and uh, asset prices uh, that, that bundled those housing prices together. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave the sticky price story as an explanator of, of macroeconomic disruption? So in my view, again, and this I'm talking now very specifically about my own research, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, go the, ahead. The, the reason is it. that this, 
I believe that the most plausible story for why prices don't adjust is exactly a Friedman-Lucas information type story. That is, in my own work, what I've emphasized is the fact that when we're setting our prices, um, setting the price together with making all other decisions are typically very information-consuming activities. They're difficult. There are costs of getting information and figuring out what is the optimal price to set. And those costs, I would even separate them into three different types of costs that show up. And that is, whenever a firm wants to set its price, it must first, it must first acquire the information. It must first figure out what is the relevant piece of data, how many customers have been going through the door, what is the price say, in your gas station of the oil prices at the wholesale level and others. But it must, beyond acquiring them, then it has to absorb those prices in the sense of understanding what do all these different pieces of data mean. And then it has to process those prices in the sense of translating then that sufficient statistic of what the relevant information into what the optimal action is, and which often involves a lot of costly bargaining even within the firm or just sure. discussing. All, that right? stuff so is all of those processes are going to mean that when I say sticky prices, I do not mean prices that are unchanged because they're written a piece of paper, but I mean the fact that you are not changing your price in response to the current economic conditions because you haven't been able to absorb all that information from the current economic conditions. Now, taking that view that, as I call it, a sticky information or an, an inattentiveness view of normal rigidities and of why prices are sticky, what's important is not that the price is being unchanged, is that the price is not responding to, to the news and information. That, I think, is as strong today as it's ever been in the past. It's true that nowadays, I think the cost of acquiring information has fallen down tremendously. You can just go online now and get a lot of information. But the cost of absorbing it in terms of figuring out what does it all mean are as high, if not higher, than ever. And the cost of figuring out just within the firm what is the right thing to do are, I think, again, as high as they've ever been. I have always, I've always found very persuasive a piece of work by Marx Baraki and a series of co-authors where they went to a large parts manufacturer in the Midwest and they measured actually what were the costs involving when these guys changed their price. Uh, and these guys actually even printed a catalog, so they were very close to this kind of menu cost view that it's costly to change their catalog. But what they found is that by literally sitting there every day and uh, following the pricing practice, how is it that this firm came up with how much would it charge for a given widget or not to its customers, and they went and measured the cost of all of this, the cost in terms of the time spent in meetings, the cost in terms of printing the catalog, the cost in terms of communicating to the customers, what they found is that these costs were, were tremendous. There were things like 1% or 2% of net operating margin. And most of them have to do essentially with just gathering information. Uh, and they have to do with agreeing around a room. Now, given that, you see that a story that talks about sticky prices, I think a modern story that talks about sticky prices, is not talking about why the price is literally unchanged. It's talking about why is it that the price is not responding to information. And so the, in terms of the current situation or the current crisis, the question is why is it that the guy who's selling sandwiches outside your office, even though he can easily write a different price there, why is it that given that so many people are getting unemployed in your area and so his sales are probably falling, why is it that he hasn't just cut the price of the sandwiches very quickly? And the reason, I think, has to do with the fact that he's still trying to figure out what's going on in the same way that I'm trying to figure out what's going on yeah. and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, a lot and of prices... The, I think the key is the, from where the stickiness comes from. I think that's a, that's a great distinction, but I, th I think a lot of prices, of course, are falling. I, yeah. I'm getting a lot more emails from the mm -hmm. uh, mail order places I use yeah. offering me discounts and special sales. Exactly. And of course, and they you, should. And right, good which that, is, I mean, and this is just part of the model. The model just says that it takes a while for people to figure it out, and they do it somewhat slowly and over time, but they do eventually do it. And, and I want to make another observation, which is that uh, in a recent podcast with Don Boudreau, we were talking about some of the Austrian theories of business mm -hmm. cycles, which have or we talked, for example, how they've not been taught in the classroom for years. There's mm -hmm. still a small group of people out there interested mm -hmm. in them. But in those models, and, and I think that interest is growing in the current situation, a lot of models that have been rejected are starting to be reexamined. But in that world, the business cycle results from distortions in the interest rate, mm -hmm. which distorts the investment decisions of firms, and capital gets misallocated. Mm -hmm. The capital isn't just K, but has certain uses, and, and there's – also stickiness there as well. Once mm -hmm. something gets formed into a machine, it's not easily changed and used elsewhere. So in the Austrian theory, uh, a, pr a price, the interest rate, is going to distort a bunch of decisions and lead to both a loss of output and, and cycles. And in the story you're telling, it's a similar story in the sense that distortions are being caused because prices aren't, quote, right Right. Uh, and that's leading people to misallocate resources. Mm -hmm. uh, or here it's about goods prices. Correct. 
So I just I just want to make that that point. It's kind of an interesting um, uh, parallel. But now let's turn to the policy debate. Mm-hmm. How how strange is it that seventy years or so after the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and seventy three years after the publication of Keynes's uh, general theory, mm-hmm. the solutions for the mess we're in seem to be the same ones that we would have chosen any time in the last, I would say, 40 years, which is juice up the money supply and spend more money that we borrow. Uh, is that likely to help either of those? And uh, how would we know? Um, well, that's a tricky question. The um I did it on. So I, I, sorry, I. I yeah, <laughs> it, it's a tough one. It's, it's but it's it's the question really because I agree, yeah. it's it, what's strange about this is that is that in the classroom, as you point out, teaching general equilibrium, the idea that multiple things affect multiple things at the same time, is very hard to do. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line isn't just how cool it is that we can build yeah. models of That's how things point. interact, but it has to should relate to the real world and what we ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've done a good job, so I want you to try to try me, to. Talk let, me, to that. let me first just revisit what I think we know from the Great Depression, and, and then I'll try to get back to whether we knew this 40 years ago already or not. <laughs> but what do I think that we learned about the Great Depression from studying that episode? Um, we learned, especially what did we learn when it comes to policy? We learned first that it's very important, or it's very, sorry, it's very serious and bad to let banks collapse. Because with the, when banks collapse at a very large scale, there's a great loss of information, and there's a serious disruption to the way in which funds are channeled from um, investors to borrowers in the economy. Okay. I think we learned that. Now, this point may have been made earlier. I think it's been made continually, and I think we've understood that more and more how it happens, including in the last 20 years. What is it that's special about banks? We've understood, I think, better what is the function that a bank really does, because it, that's a very tricky question, as you, as you may appreciate. Yeah. Um, and sure, I think we've got way too much. on that. Okay, you but in terms of the policy, that it's important to keep the banks going, but importantly, that it's not about the banks in the sense of institution X going. It's about keeping the flow from from borrowers to sorry from lenders to borrowers, and that it's about keeping the information about which are good or bad projects, and so it's about keeping that knowledge capital alive instead of getting lost. Okay, so that's the first I think policy lesson that we've learned. Second lesson we've learned, we've learned that fixed exchangers, I think, are very dangerous. And I think as Peter Temin and others have argued very persuasively, something like the gold standard may have been one of the big reasons why we had such a Great Depression, particularly a worldwide Great Depression. Now, I think we understood some of that mechanism, but I think we've understood it better since at least the 1970s when we, f- we finally went from fixed to flexible exchange rates and when we had a series of currency crises in the 80s, as well as the experience with the euro in the 90s, showing us exactly this distinction between the flexible and the fixed and the dangers of having fixed exchange rates in the transmission of shocks. Third thing that I've learned, I've learned from the Great Depression, uh, and I'm thinking here of work more recently by Al Cole and Leo Hanian, although there was also some earlier work on that, on how in a frenzy to do lots of things, while uh, Franklin Roosevelt probably did get us out of the Depression and deserves his rightful place in history for that, also made some mistakes, one of which was probably something like the NRA and the increase in the power of cartels and unions in the economy, and that may have stalled the growth of the economy. Now, that was a story that has been said earlier. I think it's been really well formalized, as I said, by Ohanian and, uh, and, uh, oh. and Cole. Sorry. Um, and I think they've really, I think, made their point persuasive. Not that that is the story of the Great Depression, but at least that, that has contributed some amount to the length of the Great Depression. Then fourthly, what did we learn? I think what we learned um, is that reacting to a big shock or a big depression falling output through protectionist measures is really a, a sure path to turn a deep recession into a Great Depression. And that happened to a great extent in the 1930s. Uh, the world has only gradually been dismantling the trade barriers that we erected back in the 70s, uh, sorry, back in the 30s. And I think we've realized the importance of this free trade uh, more and more in the last 20 and 30 years, as especially after the 1970s, the movement towards free trade has accelerated. So if I think about these four policy lessons, what do I learn? And I teach my students, what did we learn from the Great Depression? Well, be careful about um, protecting too much the capitalists in, when trying to save capitalism, as <laughs> Luigi Zingales would put it. Uh, and so be careful about the cartels and the unions. Uh, two, 
be careful about the gold standard, be careful about fixed exchange rates. Three, be very wary of protectionism. And four, do try to keep the banking sector working in the sense of, but only in the sense that knowledge doesn't get lost and that capital keeps on flowing. I think these are important lessons that we did learn from the Great Depression that we are taking into account today and I think are affecting the debate today. And that I think we've deepened our understanding of them in the last 30 years, even if none of them I think is necessarily new. Um, so well, I, I agree with most of that. I think particularly I'd say every economist, virtually every, or enormous consensus mm-hmm. that cartels – that enrich one group at the expense of the rest of the economy don't create wealth. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't be slaughtering pigs to keep farmers' incomes high and burning and throwing them away. Although even now there have been proposals to destroy cars to save the auto industry. Mm-hmm. It was horrifying mistakes. But most economists understand that those are not generally good things. Uh, we've certainly learned the idea that shifts in the money supply – collapses of, of, of the monetary aggregates are not good for the economy. If, and if, if that's what you mean by the gold standard fixed exchange rate thing, I, mm-hmm. I think that's a consensus too. What I think is interesting is the, how easy it is to misapply the lessons. So mm-hmm. the, the bank point, which mm-hmm. is clearly a key concern, and I think it's very much on the current chair of the Fed's mind, mm-hmm. that you don't want massive banking collapses because if you destroy the intermediary – between consumption today and consumption tomorrow, you are going to pay a fearsome price. But in the name of that, we've let almost no banks fail. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that knowledge that you're talking about, which is a very Hayekian specific particulars of time and and space Mm -hmm. and time and place, uh, we're keeping in place the decision makers who made really – some of them made really bad decisions. And so we're, we're, we're swinging way too far, it seems to me, uh, the other way. The right. other issue, what you didn't say, and yep. then I'll let you comment, what you didn't say was we learned that deficit spending is the way to save, uh, stave off a depression. A lot of current macro folks will argue that the reason the depression lasted as long as it did in the 30s was because we never really tried the Keynesian remedy of true deficit spending. Roosevelt was too worried about mm-hmm. the balanced budget. And we know now that that was a mistake and that that's why we're, uh, deficit spending in today, today's world is so desperately needed. Mm-hmm. And this is a good time to turn to the empirical evidence, which I promised, and to get your thoughts on what do we know about any of these things? Let's start with either the banks or the, um, the deficit spending where not only is there not a consensus, but you have Nobel laureates on each side calling the other's names and disagreeing vehemently. Mm-hmm. And – to my mind, it's just ideology. It's not science, and we are. Uh, it's a very demeaning uh, exercise. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So let me talk about the two points you raised. On the first one, is it the case that I've essentially, in some ways, enumerated some general principles, but when it comes to the real action, they become hard to apply, and in particular when it comes to the banking sector. And I think that's certainly true. Um, I think that. One thing is to understand the mechanisms for why these things are problems, to understand the circumstances in which they may lead to problems. In reality, things always end up being very complicated and having lots of things going on. I still see my job as a scientist to be able to exactly try to uh, clarify precisely these very idealized mechanisms and then let the policymaker at the time try to make the right decisions. So when I'm thinking about the banking sector now, um, as much as I... My models will be able to will tell you it's important to keep the knowledge of capital, the uh, knowledge of banks going at the same time as it is important to let people that make bad decisions go bust. Um, when it comes to applying them, it seems to me that a lot of the current recent policy decisions have been made very much subject to a series of constraints. I found very persuasive, for instance, the, pa- the paper by Philip Swagel at the last Brookings meeting a couple of weeks ago, where he noted that. In some ways, even at the end of the Bush administration, um, a lot of decisions that were made involving TARP and TALF and the others were made mostly as a response to political Absolutely. as well as um, <laughs> uh, almost marketing constraints sure. then because they didn't know that these were bad policies going on. Absolutely. And I'm afraid that that's still the case today. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to why is it that we're still not letting any bank fail, as you put it, and others, well, a lot of it I don't think is necessarily just bad economics or not knowing the economic concepts, is being very afraid of political consequences, as well as, and I've become more and more aware of that with this crisis, with the legal, legal constraints. Yep. Um, there's just Correct. clearly some right things, like letting some banks fail, which we just 
can't do because we do not have the legal institutions in the U.S. that will allow us to do an orderly bankruptcy of a, of a bank. See, it's sticky laws, not prices Maybe. and wages. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we need to change well, them. Yes. Um, and so that, I think, is very true. I mean, if I look at why we're making such a mess of the banking sector reform, whenever I try to push these discussions to the limit, it always seems to me that it's either because something was politically infeasible which I, it's always something hard to argue about, or, but more importantly, that it was legally infeasible, that we simply didn't have a Chapter 11 equivalent for banks, and so we couldn't have done it what we should have done, and so that we're trying in a very fourth, fifth, sixth best way of getting around that. Actually, huh? actually Alan Meltzer uh, argued here uh, a, few, a few months ago that, that FDICIA, FDICIA, mm-hmm. is an orderly mechanism for letting banks go out of business, and he thought we should push that. But that's, that's another story, but I just want no, to mention that. Let, let, me, let me then quickly just retort is that yeah. I, I agree completely. The problem is that the FDIC just doesn't have the legal power to do almost anything about any of the modern banks. I mean, because they can't, talk, they can't do anything about the bank holding company, just about the bank itself, for the most part, they can't solve almost any problem. If you let FDIC go into Citibank, it'll make very little of a difference because most of the Citibank balance sheet is outside the bank that the FDIC can intervene in. The, in the more complex shadow, so-called yeah. shadow bank. Right. Interesting. So, Good point. Anyway, so then on your second point, which is on fiscal policy. So I didn't mention it. It was partly, I think, um, maybe I should have mentioned it in the, so far as I do think that not as strongly as the other four points that I raised earlier, in the Great Depression, we, we learned that fiscal stimulus can be useful to boost output. Okay? In terms of going back then to do a parallelism to the other four, I think that we, Keynes argued that very, very persuasively. Um, people argued that very persuasively in the 50s and the 60s, in particular then Keynes and versus monetarists. More recently, I find the work of Gaudi Egertsen very interesting and persuasive on how is it that fiscal spending essentially is just creating expectations of future inflation as well as being able to affect real interest rates even though we're at the lower bound. And so all of those points I think are important. What there's great uncertainty though is on the quantitative magnitude of these things. And that I couldn't agree more, or I, well, I won't say agree because I'm not sure you said that, but I couldn't state more on how, how it's been disappointing that when we needed to say something useful about fiscal policy, we had essentially very little empirical work to be able to guide us on that. Um, if I contrast that, for instance, with monetary policy, we hit a liquidity trap, we hit a zero lower bound nominal interest rate. Not only did we have a lot of theory on what to do about it, we even had a lot of empirical work having been done in Japan and in other places that told us more or less something about what you could do, quantitative easing and the like. Buying, up of, buying, up, buying up of other assets besides exactly. treasuries. Mm-hmm. When it came to fiscal policy, though, the empirical evidence, in the end, uh, is just very, very small. Um, there are some good work done by Christy Romer and David Romer, and there's some good work done by Valerie Ramey, but it's just scratching the surface of what it is that happens to output if you do a fiscal expansion. A lot of that work is still very much at the... Um, at, um, rudimentary level of saying what if just the overall level but not distinguishing to different kinds of spending. And so it is true that it's just we don't have a lot of empirical work to guide us. So what I think is going on and what you see in the debates that I agree are a little discouraging is that even though, is that because we have very little empirical evidence, what you see is people essentially talking about either their pet theory or their pet ideology and then putting all their weight into that one because they've had no data to try to tell them that that's not the right theory or the right ideology. And then the discussion just seems very muddled. And so I think the problem with that debate, and I think this is just a flaw of the... I don't think it's an inherent flaw of the profession or how it's organized or about economists as as a group in itself. It's just that this was something where we were caught with our pants down insofar as we had a lot of theories, we had thought about a bunch of these things, we had not gotten yet to the level where we were testing those effectively. And so what you get then is that the, the public debate, which should be one where we're talking about not all the theories that are out there, but instead the ones that the data said are somewhat stronger or not, turn instead into a almost academic seminar in which each person is pushing their own theory and trying to, see, uh, and trying to uh, convince the others of it, even though there's still no evidence saying in favor of one or another. Well, let me give a more pessimistic conclusion. We're we're almost out of time, so you can we can end with your uh, your comments on it. Uh, one could argue it's a strange thing. It's a little bit embarrassing, I would say. I'd say it's extremely embarrassing that the small, tiny subfield of economics called macroeconomics mm-hmm. has limited evidence on the role of government spending when the money is borrowed. So, mm-hmm. when I took 
uh, macro the first time in 1974, I think it was, at the University of North Carolina, I was asked questions just like that. What would happen if, and it, you know, it's, I like to say that ISLM is really good for exam questions. It, it's also, it is good for organizing your thinking, but it's really good for exam questions. So we'd have to shift the curves and suppose government, suppose government had a bet. We talked about the balanced budget multiplier and then the, the non imbalance, the deficit multiplier. So we had all these stories we told as students and, and of course, as, as professional economists. To say that we don't have a lot of evidence on the magnitudes of the impact of those changes is kind of like saying there isn't much science there. So you're either left with saying that someday we'll get as estimates of the magnitudes. For example, the multiplier, which ranges, you know, it's tricky to how you define the multiplier, but let's put that to the side. When it ranges from zero to 1.57, you know you're in a kind of a, an ambiguous and, and lost arena and proponents of government spending say it's 1.57 the upper bound one of whom is christy romer whose work you just mm-hmm. cited others say it's it's some even say it's negative you know it destroys output when government's in because it spends so badly so we have we have no evidence on on that key thing and what are the what is the likelihood that we would get such evidence and, and let me let me argue it at, at a really crummy level because I think Mm -hmm. the real – the sophisticated debate isn't much more sophisticated than the crummy level. The crummy level says, well, we know fiscal stimulus works. Look at the Great Depression. It was ended by the war. And Robert Higgs has work – we've talked about on the show – suggesting that prosperity during the war was an illusion. It was mismeasured. And a lot of people would argue it was not a prosperous time in the United States, only prosperous for for people who manufactured weapons and who were in the army. The rest of us weren't stimulated by the government spending on military expenditures. Then they say, well, but, you know, they didn't – that's not true. So people disagree with that. Then we go to Japan. Japan spent something like, I think, what, trillions of dollars on infrastructure – borrowed money that was supposed to stimulate their economy, didn't do very well. Of course, the other side argues, well, they just didn't spend enough, or it would have been even worse if they hadn't done it. Are we really, when we move to the level of econometric evidence, are we doing any better than that? Or is it just what Taleb would call the narrative fallacy, ex post storytelling, or what Ed Lemer would call, and I'm very drawn to this, faith-based econometrics, people doing econometrics that just confirms their biases in a complex system like our economy you think we can make real progress? Well, I, no, I disagree with you there. So, first, is it that, um, is it so disappointing that we claim to be doing science or social science, what it is, and yet we don't have an answer to a basic question like that? And my answer is, look, you have to see that macroeconomics went through a real revolution what, about 25 to 30 years ago. It was a real change in how even the basics of the model get changed. It was a revolution similar to... Um, what happened with physics with relativity was truly a change in how we do things. Now, if you went to ask any question almost of macroeconomists back in the mid-80s that were working with those modern models, we wouldn't be able to answer anything. Yet, 20 years later, we are able to give very precise answers on what is the effect of monetary policy shock under different circumstances. We're able to give some answers on how different policies may or may not affect the long-run growth of some countries. Fiscal policy, as it turns out, has not been one of areas that we devoted a lot of attention in the last 20 years. And so what we've discovered now is that when we needed that evidence, we had to go back into essentially models and evidence from before the revolution, and that is where, in some ways, the inadequacy has been shown to be there. So is it, that, is it a failure of science? I think it's more that we've only been doing this for 20, 30 years. Um, Fiscal policy has just not been a very exciting area to do macro in the last 20, 30 years. Fair enough. And it's just nobody had done it yet. I don't think it's endemically the case that no one would ever have done it. And under different circumstances, we would have done it. And to me, the contract is really monetary policy. It's tremendous the progress we made in monetary policy in the last 25 years because that happened to be a hot area for whatever reasons. And historians of economic thought, I'm sure, will write fascinating accounts of that. But that, on that one, we have a lot of knowledge. We have great theory. We have great um, data. We have great estimates, and the fiscal policy was just ignored for whatever reason. So this that is on the, the first point. On the second point, is it possible to use some economic to do fiscal policy? And there I am kind of an optimist. I mean, if you look, for instance, at Christy Romer's work that you mentioned also, I think it's very smart econometrics insofar as what it does precisely is try and look in the history of the U.S. when is it that we had 
changes in fiscal policy that were driven by exogenous things that didn't have to do with the business cycle, and that will allow you, therefore, to infer their causal effect on the business cycle instead of being riddled by the fact that fiscal policy, for the most part, tries to respond to the cycle instead of causing it. I think it's a very smart use of econometrics. It's a very smart use of modern econometrics. I think it gives us a very good picture of some things. What I was complaining about was not that that study was inadequate. It was essentially just scratching the surface. It was just the first one. And we need 10, 20, 100 more in the same way that we wrote 100, 200 empirical studies of monetary policy over the last 20 years before we reach something like an idea of what's going on. And there we're still at the level of the first few studies. But not that they're not sophisticated studies or they're not important studies. Quite on the contrary, I think, for instance, Christy Romer's work is really quite just very high level and very high standard and very good. Um, and are we going to get better? I believe we do, because all of the problems that you raised about fiscal policy, whether through the anecdotes of Japan and World War II, or even more systematically, as you put it, um, I think are issues that were also true in monetary policy. And researchers got smarter and smarter, and they tried more and more sophisticated or sometimes more convoluted <laughs> techniques, and we ended up getting some idea of what's going on. It's true that you can always criticize econometric methodology. You can always say that it's an imperfect fact, that we only get there by little. By little. But I think we, but again, looking at the work on monetary policy does fill me with optimism regarding fiscal policy. And so I attribute our lack of knowledge right now not to a failing of our science, nor to a failure necessarily of our methods of improved investigation, just simply a failure of focus. The fact that over the last 20 years, Physical policy was not a hot research area. People didn't put the resources and the time into them. I hope that will change over the next few years, and we were just caught with our pants down because the crisis hit. Physical policy became important, and we didn't have good answers to give. Could be. Could be. Now, it's an optimistic view, as I said. I understand. <laughs> but uh, let me just ask you one last question about mm-hmm. the monetary policy and, and our understanding of that. Uh, I, I want to make two, uh, what I, for, for me, are very depressing observations, which is that no one, mm-hmm. no one, as far as I know, be be it a monetary yeah. economist of the first rank, which would be someone like Ben Bernanke, mm-hmm. which everyone would agree is yeah. is that he's a first-rate monetary economist. Yeah. No one anticipated this problem. A lot of people predicted that – not a lot. A few people predicted that the housing market might collapse. Yeah. Most people, almost no one, with a handful of – you could argue – there are a few people who claimed it was going to be catastrophic, but they'd been saying that a lot of things were going to be catastrophic that weren't. They were right yeah. nine times out of five. So yeah. I, I – don't put much genius in their predictions. But there wasn't a systematic economy, uh, academy-wide consensus that this problem we were in the middle of was coming. Mm-hmm. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that Ben Bernanke, mm-hmm. in response to this, has done extraordinary things to the monetary uh, – to the bank – to the reserves of, of, of uh, base money. Uh, they've gone – I think they've, they've doubled in the last year. Uh, not much has happened. So I'm not so sanguine about monetary policy. Why – what evidence is there that our macroeconomic standing, understanding of monetary policy is so healthy? So, so then let me briefly answer, again, to conclude the interview, as you put it. On the first, my previous answer, I said I'm more optimistic than you are in terms of the state of where we are as a science, and we try to understand them. Now, to the answer to this question – I'm on page with you, meaning I, while I do admire and I think that um, economists have been doing a good job of turning our knowledge into a science and systematic, we are still far, for instance, from doing good prediction. We're still, I think, at the stage where we isolate interesting mechanisms, we try to see if those mechanisms are there in the data, and then we tell stories and we interpret what's going on. The next step of being able to predict what will happen is one where I think we're still failing we're still just not there, and this keeps on being exposed recession after recession or uh, economic event after economic event. On the second question, on um, the monetary policy recession, again, what I, what I said was a consensus, and what we've learned over the last 20 years is how, what happens if you change monetary policy under normal times, away from a liquidity trap. And that I think we, we have a good sense of what's going on. But even when we hit the nominal, the zero bound, and we have a crisis like the one now on what monetary policy should do, we, do, we did have some evidence based on Japan on how you should exactly expand the monetary base in some, in, in some ways the way Bernanke has done it. And in particular, we have some theory supporting a lot, if not even most, of the things that he's been doing with the monetary base and with quantitative easing and with interest rates and so on and with these monetary policy instruments. Now, you say, well, they haven't worked. I'm not so sure. I mean, um, say it's the early. counterfactual is very hard to predict. Fair and let's see, how, and let's see what happens in the next couple of years. But... I will not, I, I do not, 
I, I don't think there's a clear case that Montreal policy has been inadequate. Quite on the contrary, I think that given our evidence, given our models, Montreal policy has been very adequate over the last year or two years, and it's done a lot of what it can do. But of course, it can't do everything, and um, and there's a lot of other things going on, and um, and we'll only learn exposed whether indeed our models and predictions are wrong. But uh, but Montreal policy is not one where I've seen big failings of the last couple of years. I've seen failings in our knowledge of the empirical effects of fiscal policy. I've seen failings in our knowledge of finance, in particular with the banking sector. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. not seen the big failings of either what the monetary policy model models predicted relative to what happened, nor of what the monetary policy model said was the, was the right policies or the policy that would have certain effects. And we've seen them being acted and have similar effects to what the models predicted. So I don't think... While poor Ben Bernanke and the Fed haven't taken a lot of the face time in dealing with this recession uh, and with this downturn, I think actually in terms of the knowledge and in terms of uh, the economic science, I don't see monetary policy. As, I see monetary policy, if anything, as being one of the areas in which we've had more solid knowledge to to uh, navigate these waters. And I see knowledge of fiscal policy, in particular, knowledge of uh, not in particular, but especially knowledge of the banking sector, financial perfections, as being where our knowledge has been more lacking. My guest today has been Ricardo Heisch, professor of economics at Columbia University. Ricardo, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.